When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey all, Stakuya here, and before things begin, I wanted to go ahead and give you a heads up of something that we're now going to be starting at the end of every single podcast. So, we recently launched our website, the History of Everything Podcast. If you want to check it out, get access to episodes, if there's anything you're confused on, go there. If you want to get in contact with us, whether it is something for like a brand deal or anything else, this is where you can reach us. But more importantly, what we're going to be doing at the end of every episode now is that we are going to be telling the stories of some of our listeners. Specifically, what we're asking for is if you are related to anyone who has done something in history, any like cool figures, the stories of family members, any just wild things that have happened here in the past of perhaps people that you're related to, we want to hear about it and we want to talk about it. So at the end of today's episode, I'm going to be taking one of the ones that was emailed into us here and I'm going to be talking about it. I do hope that you stick around for that and I hope you all have a good rest of your day and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you very much, guys. Hey everyone, Sakuyi here, and Gabby, once again, is not here for this week, but there is a specific reason for that. It's not because she's sick or anything else like that, which is pretty much what was going on last week. No, what is going on now is that I am actually recording this from home. Thanks to all of you, thanks to all of you who have supported me on Patreon, on YouTube, on TikTok, on everything else. I have made the jump, so to speak, and now I am full-time, so here I am. Thank you to each and every person who has supported me, my wife, my family, just everything for the past several months. And I do hope that we can have a long and productive future here together. To more history and more stories and more everything. So again, I'm actually recording this while Gabby is at work. And I do hope that for any future ones that we do later on, once I have them written and prepared for future podcasts, that she and I will be able to do them here together and not have to stress about things. (laughs) So, as I said, here we are. Folks, this is the end, the the last Crusades, which Gabby kind of wanted to be here for it, but there's so much that I had to cover, and I know that I go off on so many tangents when she is here because we keep on going into so many different things. So I know, I, I apologize. I know some of you like the tangents, but I think that it is about time That we wrap this up because this is going to be the episode that we cover the last of the Crusades. I mean, to be fair, we've only been doing this for what, like two months at this point. But hey, if you got tired of this, you could always join Patreon and you could become a one dollar member. And then you will get to send like you'll get to receive a full episode every week. That is a bonus episode as well as early access to all the podcasts that get made to go up then at that time. Now, we cover a lot more things there that are specifically requested by patrons as I reach out every week to get more ideas of what it is that they specifically would want. So if you want to become a patron and then give an idea, maybe yours will be chosen here for that week that we get to talk about. Now, all that being said, we need to get into this. 
So last time we were able to get through the fifth and sixth crusade as it occurred within the same time frame or like they occurred within the same time frame of each other and were supposed to have the same members. Now, I, I, I say supposed to because if you recall, it didn't exactly work out for the Germans at first. And if you weren't there, allow me to provide you with some recap or perhaps maybe you've forgotten since last week. The Fifth Crusade, now that was called by Pope Innocent III, and it had the objective, like the previous Crusades, of capturing Jerusalem from Muslim control, only this time they were going to try a new strategy. They were going to weaken the enemy first by attacking the Muslim-held cities in North Africa and Egypt, which before would have supplied reinforcements and supplies to Jerusalem and the conquered territories there. At the time, this was controlled by the Ayyubid dynasty, and it failed. Like the, the not not the Ayyubids, the Fifth Crusade. It failed after some um, initial success. The Crusader army was then just beset by a whole host of leadership issues. Like they were fighting with each other. They didn't have enough men, not enough equipment, any good ships to deal with. You know the local geography, and thus defeated on the banks of the Nile, the Crusaders had to return home once again with really nothing to show for it. Like everything that they had gained was just returned and it failed miserably. This, however, was followed by the sixth crusade, which was, which that was from 1228 to 1229. And many historians consider that more of like, I mean, it was, it was essentially a delayed chapter of the fifth crusade. It really was because the sixth crusade was led by the Holy Roman emperor, Frederick II. And he had arrived with his army in the Holy land after having long vowed to do so because initially he was supposed to be one of the kings that was in the Fifth Crusade, but him not showing up and a lot of issues with politics at home, plus getting sick and other things led to him getting excommunicated and a whole bunch of issues. But he shows up. He shows up and he performs the Sixth Crusade because Jerusalem had been out of Christian hands since 1187. But when he went, it was finally won back from Muslim control thanks to his skills at diplomacy really rather than any kind of fighting, because in February, he had a treaty that was agreed with the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, a man by the name of Al-Kamil, to hand over the holy city to Christian rule. Thus, in the end, the Sixth Crusade managed to achieve through more peaceful diplomatic means than what four bloody previous crusades had just completely failed to do. And so, after so many failures, there was finally success. But of course, as you know, we're now going to cover the seventh and the eighth crusades. You very well know that that success cannot last. Otherwise, you know, there wouldn't be another crusade in the first place. So around 15 years later, trouble was once again brewing as Al-Kamil's successors, they were trying to maintain the Ayyubid's empire, which Al-Kamil's uncle, Saladin, had founded previously in 1174. And as in the past, because there was a lot of infighting within the region under different Muslim rulers, some of the Muslim cities not under Ayyubid control, like Damascus, they continue to form alliances of, how should I put this? It's like alliances of convenience. Like, religiously, they are not tied together at all, but they do want to maintain their own level of independence. And so you had different Muslim rulers who were teaming up with the different crusader states to try and hem in or stem the power of some of the larger groups that were trying to take them over. 
So the Ayyubid control of the Middle East was greatly strengthened when a large Latin army and that Muslim alliance of Damascus and Holmes was defeated at the Battle of Laforbe, which is in Harbiya in Gaza, on the 17th of October, 1244. At the time, over a thousand knights were killed in battle, which was a disaster from which the Latin states just simply couldn't recover from. Because here's the thing. It's not like these are what should I even put the word as like domestic kingdoms, the, the way that these crusader states got more soldiers, the way they, they couldn't just raise up the peasants to be able to fight. They pretty much had to rely on foreign armies and pilgrims and different people who would be coming in to effectively swear their allegiance. Like they didn't have a good population base for it. So it was very difficult to recover. In fact, Jerusalem had already been taken from the Christians, this time by the Ayyubid allies, which was this nomadic group called the Chorismians, or the Quarismians, and this was on the 23rd of August in 1244. Christians in the Holy City were, just, they were murdered, their sacred sites were desecrated, and the Latin East, as the Crusader states and the Levant are collectively known, they then appealed to the West for help. Pope Innocent IV then responded and called for yet another crusade. The campaign that was now going to be known as the Seventh Crusade. Now, the leader of this expedition was supposed to be Louis IX, who was, at the time, King of France, and church figures went on their usual preaching tours, going around, trying to gather as many recruits as they could across Europe, though France was supposed to, in this case, be the primary provider. Leading European nobles on the expedition would include people like Henry I of Cyprus, you had Raymond VII of Toulouse, Duke Hugh IV of Burgundy, Count William of Flanders, and even Louis' own brother, Alphonse of Poitiers. I mean, it seemed that the failures of the previous Crusades were not going to dampen the spirits of, like, of these fighting men, and definitely not their religious fervor, which that is actually something that I want to touch on really quick, the, uh, the religious part. It's not exactly much of a tangent, it's just a little detail here. See, Louis, the King of France... He was a crusader who would be canonized as a saint in 1297, and he, at the time, was seen as effectively the antithesis of Frederick, Frederick II, you know, the guy who had succeeded in his crusade, who, how should I put this, he was more cynical, I guess you could say, on matters of piety. I mean, Louis, he possessed a rare combination of just religious devotion, he was firm as a ruler, he was brave as a warrior, he seemed to be the very ideal crusader, like exactly what you want. And he was beloved by his subjects and he was respected abroad. He ardently believed that it was his job, that the crusade was God's work and it was his duty to take back the Holy Land. Hell, even more so than the Pope, which he actually did not really appreciate the Pope all that much because the Pope was using propaganda of the crusade in order to further his own ambitions against Frederick and the Holy Roman Empire, like just for political gain, which he did not appreciate. But all that being said, just why in December of 1244, Louis took up the cross and decided to leave his like leave his kingdom for the Levant, we don't really know. I mean, according to legend, like there's this story that the king was seriously ill and that the moment that he decided to go on the crusade, he miraculously just was cured. Like he, he was fixed. Everything was fine. If you're looking at this from, you know, a more historical perspective and understand of what is going on, the 
other ideas that he was trying to consolidate his kingdom by restructuring its administration, which was a necessity in his long absence or just simple piety. Like he could have just straight up been doing this because, again, he was a very pious ruler, so he wanted to go. What is certain, though, is that the king decided to form the crusade even before the pope had officially called for it, which that's a complete reversal of how the procedure of previous crusades functioned and how they're supposed to work. Because it's supposed to be that the Pope calls for the crusade and then everyone gathers for the crusade. In his case, the French king was very determined that this expedition was going to be very well funded and it would be thanks to a series of tax reforms and tax heights, like this income that would come from the church and also the donations of the faithful, as well as the requisition of um, gifts quote unquote, basically just seizing things from at least 82 towns across France. This included things like, you know, payments and gifts from barons and other nobles and even the king's own pocket. So in 1248, the king who was known, this is normal. I'm just going to stress this right now. This is a very normal thing that would occur. He was known for being very anti-Jewish. And so what he did is he expelled all the Jews from France and then confiscated their property nothing was left unturned. Anything that he could find, every scrap of gold, everything that he possibly could get his hands on, he did. Which, to be fair, he needed it because you would need a vast amount of money to fund a huge undertaking like what they were trying to do. I mean, Louis even went to the expense of constructing this fortified town in a place called um, Aguemortis, which I, I... I know I'm mispronouncing it. I cannot speak French. So this is something that I more than likely will not say right at all. But that was in southern France, and it was built specifically for the purpose of allowing the Crusader army to assemble and then disembark from it in ships that were hired for the purpose from Genoa and Marseille. So supplies were also steadily gathered there in preparation for this journey. I mean, he was doing everything that he could to prepare for this. He was stockpiling all these goods all over the place in the route along the way. Like, like for example, wheat, barley, wine, like all the basic goods that you would need for the purpose of fueling an army. He stored a large stockpile of it in Cyprus, which he was to collect en route. That way you wouldn't have to weigh your ships down taking it, but simultaneously you had supplies that were waiting for you so you could move faster. Like, the man was smart, and he was prepared for it. So the Armada sets off on the 25th of August in 1248 with a force of around 10,000 men stopping off at Cyprus and staying on the island for around eight months. There, they were going to refit, resupply, rest, and get ready. The delay would then also allow any stragglers who were kind of late to joining to join the main army from both Europe and also the Middle East from the cities of like Acre, Tripoli, Antioch, etc. Like anything that still remained where potentially any Christians would want to come help them. In addition, Louis would benefit from the contribution of the military orders that were based in the Levant, like the Knights Hospitaller, the Knights Templar, and the Teutonic Knights. And so by the summer of 1249, his army was ready. They were ready to go on crusade. But the thing is, he wasn't just... He, he wasn't just this, um, how, how I should put this, a dick. <laughs> like, he, he saw himself as a true Christian knight. He wanted to maintain that sense of honor and duty. And so what he did is he wrote to the Sultan of Egypt, and he told him exactly what it was that he intended to do. Like, he wasn't just there to take the Holy Land. He was there to conquer everything. And, and I actually have the quote here, so I'm going to read this. 
I will assault your territory, and even were you to swear allegiance to the cross, my mind would not be changed. The armies that obey me cover mountains and plains. They are as numerous as the pebbles of the earth, and they march upon you grasping the swords of fate. I mean, needless to say, he meant business, and the Ayyubids needed to prepare, which is actually something that I find very interesting in the first place, how people described their armies as being this big, because a little tidbit for you all. The like armies of the medieval era were significantly smaller than those that were seen of like the classical period of like Rome. I mean, Rome, it was standard to see an army of like, oh, yeah, here they have a legion and it's got what, 38 to 50,000 men are in this one force. And they got another one that's over on the way. And in this case, it's like we have 10,000 men, our armies we are more than like the pebbles of the sands. It's just I know it's dumb, but it's its own little funny thing here that I love. But anyway, the Ayyubids, the Ayyubids who needed to prepare. The Ayyubid dynasty at this time was led by a guy called Al-Salah Ayyub, and he was the second son of Al-Kamil, who was his predecessor as Sultan of Egypt. Now, like his father, Al-Salih, he struggled to keep control of his territory due to a lot of the rivalries between Muslim leaders and even Ayyubid princes. In addition, the Mongol Empire was expanding constantly ever westward, and there didn't seem to be anything that could actually stop them. I mean, one of the funny things in there is that Louis the Ninth, he even made some diplomatic like overtures, like he, he tried to reach out to the Mongol Khan in the hope that he would actually be an ally and squeeze the Ayyubids out of Egypt by effectively sandwiching them and dividing the Middle East together. But the Mongols naturally did not care. They only cared about conquest, whether that was Christian or Muslim or Jewish or pagan or none of it mattered. Like if there was land, they were going to conquer it, which that is the Mongol way. That's kind of how these things go. Side note, but I love how all these timelines interact, like anything between the West and the East, because the Pope, I made a video about this. If you all haven't seen my TikTok, the Pope legitimately sent a letter to the Mongol Khan trying to get him like to convert. And here's how that went down. So the Pope sent this message because he was seeking to gauge like the intention of the Khan, like these conquerors and convince them to cease their invasion of Latin Christendom. So Pope Innocent IV sent an embassy with two letters in Latin to the Mongol Khan by the name of Guyuk. And so in addition to his plea for the Mongols to please stop attacking and stop raiding the West, he invited them to consider Christianity. But Guyuk did not give a shit. No, he did not care at all. In fact, he responded that the Pope needed to submit to him, not the other way around. See, Innocent had no idea, but Guyuk actually had a Christian wife, like one of his many wives, by the name of Olgul Kemish. But she was not a Catholic. She was an Nestorian, which was a variant of Christianity that had come from an area centuries earlier and which differed from the church on many different key points of doctrine. Some year later, one of Genghis Khan's grandsons would actually meet Marco Polo, which I need to do a thing on Marco Polo. His journey is just, it's so good. And I think I want to cover his entire story because it's, it's so much fun. He then wrote to Pope Gregory X asking for 100 Christian missionaries to be sent. And this was a huge mistake because not for the Mongols, but for the Christians, because the Pope was like, well, who gives a shit about this? And he only sent two. Those two then chickened out halfway 
like until they got there. And then they just turned back and went home. By the time other missionaries started to arrive in Asia in 1294, Kublai Khan, he didn't give a shit. Instead, he only cared about things like, you know, Buddhism and other things like because he he wasn't it wasn't just he cared about one thing, but his attention was divided over so many different subjects and so many different religions. And he wanted all of them in his court. So he would much rather just like focus on whatever caught his fancy than at that time. Like the next time that Christianity ended up getting a kind of um, foothold, I guess you could say, in Mongolia wasn't until the like the late 1900s. I mean, we're talking like the 1990s. Anyway, back, back to the, the Crusades. So fortunately for the Ayyubids, for the moment, the, the Mongols were going to be a future threat, not a current one. And regarding his own internal affairs, Al-Saleh, he, he, he could rely on his Mamluk regiment, the Bahris. And they had a very large number of Kipchak Turkish slave warriors that were taken from the Russian steppe to enforce his will. Thus, the Sultan, already boosted by his victory at Laforb, he was able to take control of Damascus in 1245, long since a rebel Muslim stronghold. And the decline of the Latin states continued apace when Al-Saleh captured Ascalon in 1247. So Louis' crusader army lands in Egypt in June of 1249, but they started to have a lot of problems. So the, the heavy and deep bottom sailing ships that they came in meant that the army could not easily disembark on the sandy beaches of Egypt, and so the knights had to, they had to wade through all the shallows. Meanwhile, Al-Kamil had been busy reinforcing the fortifications at the garrison of Damietta, which was the fortress city on the Nile Delta. But once all were assembled, the Crusader army now numbered around 18,000 men. This included around 2,500 knights and 5,000 crossbowmen. It was a very large army for a single battle, but it probably wasn't going to be enough to conquer the entire region. But as it turns out, the Crusaders captured Damietta in June of 1249 with, I mean, it was pretty easy. A combination of an amphibious attack on the city as well as the superiority of western crossbows gave a remarkably quick victory considering the trouble that it had taken for the 5th Crusade to try and take Damietta back in 1218. And an added bonus of this was that because the garrison had fled in panic, the city's fortifications remained intact. They had effectively seized a castle that could now be used as a staging operation, like a very strong base that they didn't have to fix up. The Sultan's main army, though, was still waiting a safe distance from Damietta. This was only the opening move of what was going to be a very long game. So in the autumn of 1249, Al-Salih was dying at his camp in Mansura, which was on the Nile Delta and probably of tuberculosis. The people of Cairo, they were in a panic because right now what could happen was that they were possibly facing a double blow, both losing Damietta and now possibly their leader. At this moment, if Louis had actually attacked and struck them, he might have achieved total victory. But as it was, the French king was still awaiting an important force belonging to his brother Alphonse, which did not arrive in Egypt until October. At the very least, the annual Nile flood was by now abating, and so the way to Cairo was open. Louis, going against the advice of most of his nobles to see the winter safely in Damietta, he decided that it was best to go and attack Cairo now on the 20th of November, 1249. The Crusaders made very painful, slow progress along the Nile. I mean, most of the troops were marching along the banks and those ships which could actually go down the Nile, they were carrying a huge quantity of supplies and equipment 
and they just followed alongside fighting against a like a contrary wind. So it, it, it everything about getting there was a fight. There was no easy way for them to get there. And at this point, the end of November 1249, Al-Salid died, succumbing to his illness. The officers of the Bahris, led by their commander, Thakir al-Din, then stepped in to smoothly continue the war against the Crusaders. After 32 days, the Crusader army was camped opposite of the Muslim camp near Mansura, itself protected by a branch of the river as well as some fortifications. Both camps now used huge catapult machines to bombard each other with artillery fire, and over this time, six weeks of sorties and relentless bombardment would occur. In the end, it was a stalemate. Louis was offered a lifeline of hope by some Muslim defectors who informed him that the enemy camp could be approached from behind by crossing a ford further downstream. And so on the 8th of February 1250, the French king made his move and a large force of knights gathered at the spot on the river where the informers had indicated. Although having to dismount and have their horses swim across, an advance force of knights did make it to the other side. Then their leader, Robert of Artois perhaps made the dumbest decision that he possibly could and immediately attacked the enemy camp before the rest of the knights had crossed the river behind him. Although Fakir al-Din was killed in the first attack, that decision by Robert of just attacking and then trying to pursue the fleeing Muslim army as it made for the town of Mansura, that proved to be his second and his last mistake. Because not only could they not overrun and capture everything in the first place, but once inside the city, Robert's knights, as few as they were, were hemmed in on all sides and separated by these narrow streets were then massacred. The Muslim army then regathered itself after the initial shock and made a counterattack on Louis and his force of knights, which had just crossed the river at the ford. And so in the chaotic and bloody battle that followed, Louis only just managed to hold his ground until reinforcements arrived from the main crusader camp at the day's end. The Ayyubid army retreated to the safety of Mansura, but at that point it was largely intact. In addition, by the end of February, the new sultan and son of al-Salih, al-Muazim Turan Shah, he had arrived at Mansura along with vital supplies as well as reinforcements. The crusaders, on the other hand, they had no means of resupply now that their camp had been cut off from Damietta by a fleet of Muslim ships, and soon, starvation and disease were rife in the camp. Finally, on the 5th of April, 1250, Louis ordered a retreat. The Western army, greatly reduced by disease, starvation, and constant attack from the Ayyubid army, was over two days virtually wiped out as an effective force. The remaining crusaders, only halfway back to Damietta, just surrendered and the French king himself, seriously ill with dysentery, was captured. Louis was then released on the 6th of May, but only after the payment of a large ransom for himself, a ransom of 400,000 livres for what remained of his army, and the surrender of Christian-held Damietta. Once free of his Muslim captors, Louis, I mean, to be fair, he didn't just flee home in disgrace, but instead remained in the Middle East for four more years. During that time, he oversaw the refortification of his base at Acre, as well as the strongholds of Sidon, Jaff, as well as Caesarea. Louis also then created an innovative new force of a hundred knights and a complement of crossbowmen, where, unlike previous knights who were garrisoned at particular strategic cities or castles, this force was instead a highly mobile force that was supposed to be sent wherever they were needed in order to protect Latin interests in the Middle East. 
The crusade, although a complete flop, did in the end contribute to the fall of the Ayyubid dynasty in Egypt in May of 1250, where they were actually ousted by the Mamluks. The changeover of power occurred when the Mamluk officer group murdered Tehran Shah. There followed 10 years of bitter factional fighting between the Ayyubid nobles and the military generals, until finally, the Mamluks set themselves up as the new lords of the former Ayyubid territories, although Aleppo and Damascus still remained under the control of Ayyubid princes. I mean, it's estimated that at this time, the Seventh Crusade cost Louis a massive 1.5 million levers, which, mind you, for reference, just so you understand how big that is, that was approximately six times his annual income as King of France. Despite the material costs and the physical dangers, Louis would be back in the Crusades once again on the other end of his long reign when he led the Eighth Crusade of 1270. Which means that now that we can get into this, because we just talked about the Seventh Crusade, so this is not like a completely new episode. I don't need to do a recap, so we can just jump right into things. Here's what happens after. Louis had been sending funds annually over time to the Latin states in the Levant in the intervening years since his botched First Crusade, but the rest of Europe was kind of preoccupied, like they had their own affairs and other things to deal with. Like in England, there was a civil war and the popes were already in constant battle with the Holy Roman Empire over the control of Sicily and parts of Italy. It seemed nobody really cared at all for the fate of the holy sites in the Middle East. In the Middle East, meanwhile, the situation for Christian cities was not good. The Mongol Empire, seemingly intent on total conquest everywhere, was moving closer and closer to the Mediterranean coast. In 1258, the Baghdad, the seat of the Abbasid Caliphate, was captured, followed by Ayyubid-controlled Aleppo in January of 1260 and Damascus in March of the same year. I mean, it looked very much like the Crusader states might be next in line when the Mongols made raids on Ascalon, Jerusalem, and northern Egypt. When a Mongol garrison was established at Gaza, an attack on Sudan quickly followed in August of 1260, Without outside help, Bohemond VI of Antioch, Tripoli, he was forced to accept subservience to the Mongols and permit a permanent garrison to be established at Antioch. The Mongols were already now, at this point, controlling Christian cities. The Muslims, in contrast, they did stage something of a fight back against the Mongol invaders when the Egyptian-based Mamluks, led by the gifted general Baibars, he won the Battle of Ain Jalut, which I actually did a video on here before using some great tactics. I should go over that one more detail here for a future podcast. But anyway, he won the Battle of Ain Jalut on the 3rd of September 1260. Baibars then murdered the Mamluk Sultan, Kurtuz, and he took over the position for himself, reigning until 1277. The Mamluks continued their expansion over the following years, fighting the Mongols back to the Euphrates River. The Christian cities suffered too, with Baibars capturing Cesarea itself and Arsuf, even the Knights Hospitaller Castle of Caractas Chevalier. Antioch would then be captured in 1268, and the Muslim sect of the Assassins were also targeted in their castles in Syria, captured during the 1260s. Baibars was now master of the Levant, and he declared himself to be God's instrument and the protector of Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem, the holy cities. Like, this was, this was a very messy time, it filled with all different kinds of complex regional politics and shifting alliances and a variety of things. As an example of that, the Christians of Antioch had actually joined forces 
with the Mongols to take Aleppo. And in contrast, the Christians of Acre decided to remain neutral and side with neither the Muslims nor the Mongols. Whatever the situation was, the geographical reality in the mid-1260s was that the Latin East was on the verge of destruction. It was set to be gone. And it was into this messy, complicated political situation, and to a much lesser extent religious, that Louis IX and his Eighth Crusaders were about to come into. See, back in Europe, Louis took the cross again. If, I mean, I guess he never exactly put it down because he was always doing things related to the crusade. But in March of 1267, he took up the cross once again. The French king had the backing of Pope Clement the Fourth, uh, and a general call was made for nobles and knights in Europe to once again come to the aid of Christians in the Middle East. As was the case in previous campaigns, these um, these preachers went around touring with the crusade message, and a huge pot of cash was accumulated by any means that the state could think of, and ships were going to be hired from Marseille and Genoa. As before, crusaders came from all over the place from different countries. I mean, you had English ones, Spanish ones, Frisian, Dutch, German, all different kinds of groups. But once again, it was going to be dominated by the French. You had all these big names from the nobility who signed up, including, again, Alphonse of Poitiers, Louis' brother, the future King Edward I of England, King James I of Aragon, and Charles of Anjou, who was King of Sicily. Th- this was big. It was going to be big and it was going to be a final hurrah. They were going to take things. An army was gathered of between 10 to 15,000 like men, which was similar to the size of Louis' first crusade, but not quite as big. The idea that in order to defeat the Muslims, they had to retrieve control of the Holy Land. It was best to attack from Africa. That was still the prevailing idea. Although the first target this time was not going to be Damietta in Egypt, as was in the last crusade, but rather Tunis, which was much further west on the North African coast. The idea of this course was that the crusaders needed a mustering point after the various fleets had sailed across the Mediterranean, and the emir of Tunis, Al-Mustansir, he was actually an ally of James I of Aragon. If the region could be controlled, it would provide a solid base from which they would be able to attack the Nile in 1271. At least, that was the plan anyway. The army of the Eighth Crusade set off for the Middle East in groups, the first, of course, being led by James I of Aragon in June of 1269, which unfortunately met disaster with a storm. Charles of Anjou then set off in 1270, while Edward I was even later and sailed in August of 1270. While the Crusaders were just dithering around, they were being slow, the situation for the Latin states was just getting worse. As mentioned above, Antioch was actually taken by Baybars or Bybars in May of 1268 after a bloody siege. Though July of 1270, the bulk of the Crusader fleet landed at Tunis and the army then moved to Carthage to establish a kind of semi-permanent camp and await for the stragglers to arrive. As was typical in medieval warfare, the two great enemies of this army were lack of provisions and then disease. Because when you had such a high concentration of humans that were all together in the height of summer in North Africa, you're going to have problems. So the Crusader camp was hit by both, and especially problematic was the lack of clean water. Disease and illness just ran rampant everywhere, so that even Louis' son, John Tristan, died, and the French king himself, just like on his first crusade, 
he caught a serious bout of dysentery. Unfortunately, though, unlike his previous bout, the king didn't survive this one. And after a month of torment and crapping himself to death, Louis literally crapped himself to death, and he died on the 25th of August, 1270. There's legends, in fact, that when he died, his last words were crying out, Jerusalem. But they never made it. Charles of Anjou, who had only just arrived, he took command of the crusade after Louis's death. The decision was made to withdraw after a deal was negotiated with the Emir of Tunis to hand over Christian prisoners, guarantee freedom of worship in the city, and donate a golden handshake of around 210,000 gold pieces. And it was at this point that Edward I of England finally arrived in Africa, but at that point the party was already over. The fleet sailed back to Sicily to regroup in November, but any plans to use military force to do anything, you know, for the actual crusade, they were done. Along with most of the ships and a thousand men were lost in a violent storm, and there was no point. Only Edward wished to continue to the Holy Land. Everyone else just simply abandoned the crusade, and most crushingly, this was the worst, most disappointing failure in a long line of just absolute catastrophes for the crusade. Despite the failure, the papacy did not abandon the idea of crusading. Edward and his small band, which, mind you, only had around a thousand men, they were supplemented by just a couple French knights. They arrived in Acre in September of 1271 in what is sometimes grandly referred to as the Ninth Crusade, but it wasn't a real crusade. A thousand dudes showed up in the Middle East and it was not, it was not a crusade. Unsurprisingly, with only a thousand guys, they couldn't do much to really stop Biber's expansionist plans, but Edward did at least gain the benefit of being lauded by all these different poets and songwriters for his efforts because he was the only European monarch to actually make it to the Holy Land from the Eighth Crusades. Louis IX then gained an even more spectacular, if posthumous, boost to his image because the king was made a saint in 1297 for his services to the cross. Back in the Levant in 1291 with the fall of Acre, the Latin East that was established during the First Crusade of 1095 to 1102 effectively came to an end after almost 200 years. And so ends the Crusades. I mean, to be fair, there's other Crusades in other parts of the world, but this is, my friends, the Crusades. This is the Crusades, the ones that are famous, the ones that when we think of the Crusades, this is what we're referring to. And I do hope that you all enjoyed listening to me here today. I'm actually very excited for some of the stuff that we have coming up here, and I hope that you all will listen in the future. And speaking on the future, what it is that we are going to be doing, as I said from the beginning, is we are now going to be talking about some of the people that you all, the listeners, are related to. And we're going to take one of these every week to talk about, and I figured that it was only fitting that the first one that we talked about is the first person that actually messaged in with their family member. So a person by the name of E, or at least that's what it says on the email, just literally the letter E, I'm not actually sure, I apologize, is you said that you are related to Edward Rudledge, which is really cool. For those of you who don't know who Edward Rudledge is, that is the youngest signer of the Declaration of Independence. This guy, I mean, 
he's got a pretty impressive story. He was born in an aristocratic family in South Carolina and was perhaps destined to a life of public service. See, he was educated in law at Oxford and he studied for and was admitted to the English bar. He and his brother John were both engaged in law and both went on to attend Congress. They supported each other, like just, I guess, unabashedly on both in the floor and in the committee, which seems kind of, you know, nepotism, but they did whatever it is they could to further both themselves and their family, as well as their political ambitions. He attended Congress at the remarkable age of 27, and I mean, no doubt was probably pretty excited to find himself in the company of the biggest man in the colonies. He took leave of Congress in November of 1776 to join the defense of his colony when war broke out, and he was a member of the Charleston Battalion of Artillery, where he was engaged in several important battles. Thereby, he attained the rank of captain. The colonial legislature then sent him back to Congress in 1779 in order to fill in vacancy, and he took his leave again in 1780 when the British conducted a third invasion of South Carolina. He then resumed his post as captain in the defense of Charleston until he was captured and held prisoner until July of 1781. In 1782, he returned back to the legislature of his native state, where he served until 1796. And there he was a very active member, intent on the persecution of British loyalists. At the time, he served on as many as 19 different committees. And he also served as an elector in 1788, 1792, and again in 1796, where despite his avowed allegiance to the Federalist Party, he voted for Thomas Jefferson. And he was then elected to the state Senate twice, and in 1789 was then elected governor. This would be his last office because his health over time started to decline and he was barely able to complete his term as governor, where he died on January of 1800 at the age of 50. Not too old, but it's still impressive just over the course of 23 years, like at the age of 27, he went on to sign the Declaration of Independence and for 23 straight years was just involved in nothing more than politics until he croaked. Genuinely, that's pretty impressive. And I do hope that all of you listening in here today have other stories that you want to share and send in, and I would love to talk about them. We all have a piece of history to share, whether it's something that has happened with our own story, our parents, our ancestors, just everyone has a story to tell. And I want to bring that to life in any way that I can. Thank you all for listening, and I do hope that you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye, guys. I'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.